God, indeed, we've prepared our hearts now and sang together that every praise is to you. God, all glory and power and authority and dominion and praise belongs to you. God, we indeed stand amazed at your love for us. That God that, that every praise is for loves us in and through your son, Jesus Christ. We are amazed. And God, you are holy. And so in this moment, uh, God, as now we've prepared our hearts, we invite you to speak through your word. And then, and then as we kind of turn a corner to conclude our service, as we respond uh, by a little bit more singing, a little bit more worship, as we give you uh, more and more glory through our songs to you today. God, meet us here in this place. Speak to us as we talk a little bit about a, 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 what may be a difficult topic this morning. In Christ's name, God's people together said, amen. Well, I, I mentioned that the topic that we're talking about might be a little bit difficult for some of us today, and, and it is a little bit polarizing. It's a topic that's been the source of contention in the church now for centuries, and if you're a church person, when I mention what we're talking about, uh, here, here in a moment, you might even cringe a little bit. You might flinch a little bit. You might think to yourself, I knew this pastor was crazy. The fact that he would address that topic wrought with tension on a Sunday morning it just affirms that the inmates are running the asylum here at Bayview Glen. I knew it. I knew it. So here it is. Here's the topic of conversation that's been the source of contention in the church now for centuries. Are you ready, everybody? Worship. It's tough. It's a tough one. If, if you've been around church for a while, you know that that's been the source of tension and division. Worship and styles and music have been the source of tension in the church for a long time. If you are brand new to church, I just want to kind of catch you up to speed here about what we've been dealing with for the last couple thousand years. You know, music and singing was always a part of what the early church did. In fact, Jesus and his disciples used to sing hymns together. So when he died and resurrected, the early church's followers uh, continued that tradition. They began to sing together. They, sung, they sang hymns together. Many of them are even recorded in scripture. And at the end of the fourth century, about 375 AD, Gregorian chant kind of rose to popularity. Have you heard Gregorian chant before? It's very monotone. It's only melody and it's sung by only men. But somebody at some point got the brilliant idea that we ought to add boys into the mix whose voices have not changed yet and they would take that octave. Ooh, tension. And, and not only that, some of those boys even started to sing harmony. <gasps> and I'm not kidding, at the end of the fourth century, there was tension in the church and division about what kind of music they were singing. In the 15th and 16th centuries, men like Jan Hus, who's a, who's a hero of mine, began to write hymns. And they didn't write hymns in the traditional language of the scripture. They wrote uh, hymns in languages that people understood. He wrote hymns in the Czech language for Czech people to sing. And that was part of the reason that they, the church actually burned him at the stake, because he was writing hymns in the Czech language. Martin Luther did the same thing. He wrote hymns for the church to sing. But John Calvin said, no, no, no. We should just be singing the Psalms word for word. We shouldn't have any of this new music. And again, tension and, and, and fractions and, and factions in the church. 
In the 18th century, 1750, a couple of brothers who you might have heard of before, John and Charles Wesley, started to write songs in order to construct, they were instruct, they were pedagogical tools for instructing people true doctrine. And church leaders said, no, 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 we can't instruct through song, we've got to instruct through preaching. And again, division in the church. Late 19th century, the Sunday school movement started to rise to popularity. And these leaders of the Sunday school music, they started to write songs too. But they didn't write objective songs like God You Are. They wrote uh, subjective songs that talked about my experience with God. And everybody got angry with them because these songs that they were writing that mentioned me and I, they were ridiculous and they weren't biblical. They wrote songs like Jesus Loves Me and Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine and tension in the church. Jazz began to influence church music in the early 20th century, and the Pope in 1903 literally released a statement that says this, the employment of the piano is forbidden in church. Look at that. <laughs> then the Jesus movement came along in the 60s and 70s. You remember the Jesus movement? Guitars and <gasps> drums. <gasps> And tension in the church, just like there had been for 2,000 years. I ran across this cartoon this week. I think it was great. Uh, it's up here on the screen. It's an old man telling scar stories and war stories to this young boy. And he says, and that scar I got from the chairman of the board during the second battle of guitars in the sanctuary back in 71. <laughs> been tension in the church about music for thousands of years. Do you see a pattern Anytime that new musical genres, instruments, and expressions have been introduced in the church, there has been strife. And those new expressions of worship and music have caused people to write things like this. And I quote, there are several reasons for opposing it. That means new music in the church. One, it's too new. Two, it's often worldly, even blasphemous. The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style because there are so many songs, you can't learn them all, puts too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than godly lyrics. This new music creates disturbances, making people act indecently and disorderly. The preceding generation got along without it. It's a money-making scene, and some of these new music upstarts are lewd and loose. Now, some of you think, you know what, when it comes to introducing new music into the church, I agree with that guy. I like that guy. Some of you are thinking, did you just read an email that you received in the last couple of weeks? No, I didn't. I, wrote a, I read a portion of an editorial newspaper column from 1723. That column was written about one of my favorite hymn writers, a man named Isaac Watts. He wrote, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. He wrote, Joy to the World. He wrote, O God, Our Help in Ages Past. Isaac Watts, Lewd and Loose. Pshaw. Today, I want to add to the conversation, not because I like conflict, although I do sometimes, I'll just be honest with you, but because today we come across in our study of the gospel of Luke, a snapshot of this woman who represents for us a true biblical pattern for Christocentric, Christ-exalting worship. She gives us an idea of what the heart of worship really is. And that's the snapshot we're going to take a look at today. And I want to tell you two reasons why this is so critical for us. One is because our misguided definition of that word worship is often the reason we fight about it. 
A lot of times the tension and, and, and the disagreements in church is because we have not defined that word worship in a biblical way. We've defined it in whatever way we just feel like we ought to define it. And that's the cause of a lot of the tension. I'll be honest with you. Uh, this May uh, marks 18 years for me of vocational ministry. 18 years I've been doing this. And I see it over and over and over that people struggle with worship in the church and corporate worship and how we sing and what we do because they have misdefined that word worship. When we don't define it in a biblical way, we get ourselves in trouble. I'll give you an illustration of how this works. Amy sent me a text several months ago. The text read this. Luke, you have to come home now. There's a dead moose on our property. I don't want to touch it. You have to get it off. Autocorrect. Change the word mouse to moose. <laughs> dead mouse, totally different. Totally different. Like... Dead moose, like, what do you want me to do? Like, call somebody, you know? Like, mouse, oh, good, I can deal with that. See, when we have a misguided definition of a word, when we mistake it, we can get in trouble, can't we? And we get in trouble in the church when we don't define that word worship in a biblical way. Number two, this is another reason why it's critical to understand what worship really is. Because worship is what we're called to do. This is what we were designed for. It's what we were created for. This is the reason God made us, to give him worship and praise. The Westminster Shorter Catechism sums up the Bible in, in kind of these question and answer format. And here's the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's a summary of what the Bible says we were created for. Our chief end, our goal, what we were designed for is to glorify God. It's affirmed all throughout the scripture. Psalm 86, Isaiah 60, uh, Romans 11, 1 Corinthians 6, Revelation 4. And if this is what God designed us to do, don't you think we ought to have a biblical picture of what it is? That makes sense to me. And so in order to avoid conflict, in order to get a true biblical picture of what worship is, we're going to take a look at this snapshot from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 7, if you've got your Bibles, verse 36. Luke chapter 7. If you don't have the Bible, uh, Bible with you, there's one in the seat back in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home that you can bring with you, we would like to get you one, so come see me. I will get you a Bible. You can use that one for now. The scripture's up here on the screen. You can also jump on an iPhone or an iPad or whatever you need to do. So we're going to get a biblical picture of worship from this snapshot in the Gospel of Luke as we continue our series this morning. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Here we go. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he, Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Okay, so let's get a context here. Everybody get a picture. We're at a Pharisee's house. We don't know which Pharisee yet. We'll find out in a minute. But we're at a Pharisee's house. He's a religious guy. He's a religious leader. He jumps through all the right hoops. He does all the right things. And remember, the religious leaders weren't exactly big Jesus fans. But I kind of like this guy because he's got an interest in Jesus. He says, come to dinner at my house. I'd like to get to know you a little bit. So, so far, I kind of like this guy. He invites dinner, or Jesus to dinner and Jesus accepts it. 
Now, the way that they ate back then wasn't exactly the way that we eat now. In fact, it was a little bit different. Instead of sitting at a kitchen table on a chair, they, they had flat couches and flat tables that were really low to the ground. And so when they ate, they actually reclined on their side, like laid down all the way on their left arm, and their feet would have extended out behind them. I would do it, but I'm in a sport coat. Nobody wants to see it. Okay, but, but it's critical to understand what happens as they're eating around this low table. It says a woman of the city, a sinner, comes in the room, Luke 37, or Luke 7 verse 37 tells us a woman of the city a sinner comes in the room so listen Luke doesn't tell us exactly what this woman does for a living but I'll give you two guesses and you'll probably only need one clearly the implication here in the original language is that she's a prostitute she's a hooker she sells her body for sex that's what she does to make her living and she comes into the room And her presence there would have been a little bit uncomfortable for everybody, including her. She would have been out of place among these rabbis and religious leaders, but her presence was uncomfortable, but her actions were almost inappropriate. They were nearly even brash. But each choice she makes, now listen close, each choice she makes, each step in this process helps us to get a clear picture for what true biblical worship is. And it's all right there in verse 38. Look at verse 38. It's up here on the screen. It says, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Number one, she's standing. You see that? Standing behind him. Jesus is reclining at table on his side. This woman enters the room and she doesn't feel worthy to recline at table. She doesn't even feel worthy to stoop down to Jesus' feet behind him. She enters the room and remains standing and bends over at the waist. And in verse 38, Luke tells us that she begins to weep. She begins to wet his feet with her tears. The original language there says this, that she is raining down tears on his feet. She's weeping. She's crying. It's loud. I mean, it's not one of those tough guy tears from the movies. It's not a little whimper. She is raining her tears down at the feet of Jesus. Number three, she's standing. She's weeping. Number three, she lets her hair down. And she begins to wipe the feet of Jesus. Now, for some of you, this may be a little uncomfortable, and I just want you to tell you, tell you that just from the jump. I'm going to try to explain this in a delicate way. When a woman who did what she did for a living was going to engage with a man sexually in exchange for her body, she would take her hair, which was normally pinned up, she would take her hair, which was normally covered under some kind of a head garment, And she would take the head garment off and she would let her hair down before she was to engage in sex with one of her clients. Every man in this room would have recognized this as an erotic motion movement action. But this is exactly what she does so she can wipe the feet of Jesus. She lets her hair down. Now I want to tell you two things. One, we know Jesus didn't sin. So he's not looking at this woman lustfully. Everybody get over that. Number two, because she's doing it in a public place, because she's standing 
And because she's weeping and bawling her eyes out at the feet of Jesus, we can safely assume that this is not a come on. She's not trying to entice Jesus. So what's she doing? What's the significance of letting her hair down? For this woman, listen close, she's abandoning all propriety and all inhibitions in an act of unbridled, raw worship. She doesn't care about the priestly garments of the people at the table. She isn't worried about what people might think of her. She just sees Jesus, and when she sees him, she begins to weep and let her hair down in an act of uninhibited worship. She worships him in every way that she knows how to do. Luke continues, verse 38 says that she kissed his feet. She's wet his feet with her tears. She's wiped them with her hair and she begins to kiss his feet. Now Jesus' feet should have been clean. We'll learn in a minute that they are not because Simon, the Pharisee, when Jesus walks in the house, doesn't wash Jesus' feet. He should have, but he doesn't. So Jesus' feet are covered with dust and animal feces and grime and mud and whatever else would have collected sweat over the course of the day. But you can almost hear this woman say every time she plants a kiss on Jesus' feet, I love you, I love you, I love you. Finally, she anoints Jesus' feet with ointment from an alabaster flask. Women in this day and age would have carried, uh, it's kind of a globe or a, or a cylinder, a flask with a long neck on top of it, and it would have contained very costly perfume, very fragrant perfume. And when you wanted the contents of that alabaster flask, you would have broke the neck off and poured them out. So when she begins to anoint Jesus' feet with oil, it would have smelled a lot. It would have been very fragrant, and it would have cost a lot. It was likely the most expensive thing that she owned, and she pours it over Jesus' feet in an act of worship. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon answered, say it, teacher. I want you to note real quickly before we move on here that Luke has referred to our banquet host four times already, four times. And in each case, he calls the banquet host a Pharisee. He's at a Pharisee's house, a Pharisee invited him to dinner, Pharisee, Pharisee, Pharisee. But when Jesus addresses this man, he calls him by name for the first time in the passage. For the first time in the text, we learn the name of this man, and it is Simon. Here's the deal. Jesus is not interested in titles, good or bad. He's interested in you. He's interested in people. So when he addresses this man, he doesn't call him Pharisee. He doesn't call him, hey, you. He doesn't call him, hey, guy with the attitude, let me explain something to you. He looks at him and in a moment of tenderness says to a legalistic, non-grace-based jerk is what he's being at this point, Simon. He says, Simon. Jesus looks him in the eye and calls him by name because his grace and tenderness extends even to the Pharisee. And Jesus begins to tell Simon a story. Pick it up in verse 41. Jesus says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. 
One owed 500 denarii. That's about 500 days wages, by the way, nearly a year and a half. The other owed 50. That's about 50 days wages. 42. When they could not pay, he, the moneylender, canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? (laughs) Verse 43, Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly. So here's Jesus' parable. Two individuals are debtors to a single creditor. One owes about a year and a half worth of wages and one owes about 50 days worth of wages. And both debtors, get this, have become equally insolvent. Neither of them can pay back what they owe. Doesn't matter how much or how little, neither of them can pay it back. And so the creditor cancels the debt of both. And Jesus asks a really simple question, which debtor loved the creditor more? Simon's response, he gives Jesus a little attitude here, by the way, the original tone of voice, original language here. Simon says, well, I suppose that the man who owed more, the creditor who owed more, or or the debtor who owed more, loved the creditor more. I suppose. Jesus says, yep, exactamente, positively. No, he says, you're right. (laughs) He affirms Simon. He says, yeah, you get it. Now let's apply it. You understand. Now let's apply it. Keep reading, verse 44. Then turning to the woman, Jesus said to Simon, look what he's doing now. He's facing the woman and he's talking to Simon. Jesus says, do you see this woman? My guess is that Simon had not really seen her. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Check this out, because we talk about this a lot here. Remember, we talk about when things in Scripture are repeated, they're important. Remember that? We've talked about that and we see, do you see that, that Jesus is repeating the exact same pattern that Luke has just told us happens? Luke tells us that she comes into the room and she begins to weep and wet his feet with her tears. She wipes them with her hair. She kisses the feet of Jesus and she anoints them with oil. And then when Jesus talks about the woman, he repeats the exact same pattern. Do you see it repeated there? He says, she came in and and she wet my feet with her tears. You didn't give me anything to wash my feet, but she wet them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't kiss my cheek, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since the time I walked in the door. You gave me no ointment for my head, but she's anointing my feet with oil, likely the most expensive thing that she's got. For Jesus and for the evangelist, the author of the Gospel of Luke, Luke himself, for both of them, listen close, there is something about that pattern. There's something about those actions that she takes that is worth repeating twice in the text. It's worth modeling And it's something worth learning from. So let's finish our story and we'll come back and learn from it. Verse 47, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he he who is forgiven little, loves little. I want to tell you real quick about original language here, just so everybody's clear theologically. Jesus is not saying that because she loved, she is forgiven. Because she worshiped me, because she loved me, she is forgiven. What he's saying is, I can tell she's forgiven because of the way she loves. 
I can tell she's forgiven because of the way she worships. He's saying because of the way she loves, that demonstrates that she's already forgiven. Do you see it? It's not love that comes first and earns forgiveness. It's not her worship of Jesus that earns her forgiveness. It's her forgiveness prompts, the forgiveness that she's experienced, the redemption that she's experienced, prompts and is a catalyst for great love and affection and adoration for Jesus. Verse 48, and he said to her, Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began saying to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. What we have at the end of Luke chapter 7 is a picture. It's a snapshot. It's a compelling, beautiful picture of what it means to truly worship Jesus Christ. So here's what we're going to do in our time remaining. We're going to take a few aspects of this story, a few principles that we just discovered and talked about here, and we're going to put them together and define that word worship. And so we're going to unpack this definition and we're going to build it piece by piece. And so I want to tell you, if you're a note taker and you like jotting this stuff down, give yourself plenty of room. You're going to see just a little piece and building blocks as we go, but give yourself plenty of room. You guys know I'm long-winded. Get over it. You've already known that. It's been, been, been that way for a long time. That was a joke, by the way. Come on now. And, and, and I want to kind of give you a spoiler alert here as we talk about worship. It's got nothing to do with music. Notice that there's, there's no guitar, there's no organ, there's no drums, there's no song. But as we do that, as we talk about worship and define it biblically, which is what we kind of set out to do, because that's what we we're created for in order to avoid conflict, I'm going to mention some of the songs we sing around here, and I'm going to tell you how and why they fit into a biblical definition, a biblical picture of worship that we get from this woman at the end of Luke chapter 7. So when we sing those songs, you know what the cry of our heart is as a congregation. So let's start. Let's build our definition of worship. Here we go. Leave yourself plenty of room. Worship is an active response to Christ. Worship is an active response to Christ. We're going to build more, leave yourself plenty of room, but worship is an active response to Christ. Here's why I know that based on this picture from Luke chapter 7, end of Luke chapter 7. What did you notice there that is conspicuously missing? Anything? Anybody catch anything that's just not happening in that passage? Here's, here's one thing. The woman that we're learning from, that we've got an example in, never speaks. She doesn't say a word. She comes in, she weeps, she wipes his feet with her hair, she kisses his feet, she anoints his feet with oil, she never says a word. And 2,000 years later, we're still reading about her. Here's what this tells me. Our worship is far more about action than it is about words. It's far more about lifestyle than it is about song choice. It's far more about the way we behave than the instruments we use. Jesus invites true worshipers to respond actively. He says a little less talk, a lot more action. The other thing that's conspicuously missing here that I think is really, is, is really very curious to me, I think the, and I think this is fantastic the way this happens. Do you, do you recognize that Jesus doesn't do anything special here? Like he doesn't heal a paralytic, he doesn't heal a leper, he doesn't feed 5,000 people, doesn't raise anybody from the dead, doesn't cause anybody to see that's been blind from birth, none of that stuff. You know what he does? He's nice to a hooker. 
He shows grace to somebody who had never experienced grace before. So here's the invitation of worship. It's an active response. It's not passive. And it's an active response to Christ, who he is, his character, not the tricks he does, not the fun blessings that we get from God in life, although those are reasons to worship him too, but we worship him for who he is, which doesn't change. And we do so actively. We respond to the love that Christ has poured out onto us. As the Bible says, we love because he first loved us. Us. Worship is an active response to Christ. When you come here for corporate worship, do you come to participate or to spectate? Do you come to engage or to evaluate? The choice is yours, really, but biblical worship, a true picture of Jesus, it's active. Hence, we sing songs like, Take my life, let it be consecrated, Lord to thee. Take my voice, take my feet, take my hands, take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my heart, it is thine own, it will be thy royal throne. Take my will and make it thine. Why? Because it's active, not passive. Worship is an active response to Christ whereby the redeemed of God whereby the redeemed of God. Here's the deal. Remember our fourfold pattern there that was repeated? Weeping, wiping feet with hair, uh, sorry, kissing feet and anointing with oil. Remember that fourfold pattern? The first piece of that fourfold pattern really kind of helps us understand this part of our definition, whereby the redeemed of God. The woman's first instinct when she comes into the room is to do what? Weep. Buckle over and break down, weeping at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because she knows full well her own sin. And nobody else in the room crying, but she is. Because she feels the weight of the distance that she is from God. She knows, spiritually speaking, that she was an insolvent debtor who could not pay back. Spiritually speaking, she was bankrupt. She knows that she could not correct it on her own. And she knows that Christ has forgiven her and she stands before a holy God now with confidence. In other words, she feels the depth of her redemption. She is the purchased, the redeemed of God. So worship is an active response to Christ whereby the redeemed of God. You know, it's funny that Jesus at the end of the text actually tells Simon, the reason I know she's forgiven is because of the way she worshiped. You see that? Her, her, her sense of redemption, knowing how far she had come is what prompts her to worship. You know what? And here's, here's the thing in the church. I know we don't do this much. I know we don't contemplate our own sin much. I know we don't like sit around and think about, let me list all the things that I had done and I haven't done and let me just own that for a little while. And you know what? Here's the thing. Just a caution. Just a caution. The longer we walk with Jesus, the expectation is and the reality is that Jesus changes us from the inside out. And so our behavior shifts and the things that we used to do that didn't honor God, uh, we've corrected those things and God has corrected those things in us. And the things that we used to fail to do that we should have done, God has corrected those things in us. And so we kind of lose the weight of our sin. We kind of lose the weight of 
what it means to be separated from God. We lose what it means to be redeemed of God and purchased of God. We lose that picture of the great lengths that Christ went to to purchase you and me by his own blood. And we think, you know what? I've been doing pretty good the last 30, 40 years. I've been walking with Jesus. My behavior's changed. I'm not that bad. I was reading a Puritan author this week. I think his quote is great. He says this, Till sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. Until we take a cue from this woman and we understand that our posture before Jesus is buckled over at the waist, weeping, then our worship is never going to be biblical. Number three. Oh, P.S. It's the reason we sing, oh, praise the one who paid my debt. Worship is an active response to Christ whereby the redeemed of God unreservedly, unreservedly, put that word in there. It means unashamedly, it means publicly, it means audibly, it means without hesitation. This piece of our definition comes from the second kind of aspect of what she does. It comes from a letting down of hair. Remember, this is not a come on. This is her releasing inhibitions and not caring about what anyone else in the room thinks of her and just loving Jesus and caring for him and worshiping him in whatever way that she knows how. The letting down of hair points to the releasing of inhibitions. It's a complete lack of self-awareness and a focus on Christ. No self-awareness, complete Christ awareness. And it takes away any hindrances that might have kept her from just kind of losing herself in worship. I want you to know, this is an Old Testament motif too. Remember we talked about David last summer? And when the Ark of the Covenant comes back into Jerusalem and worship is restored, David's partying before God and he's dancing before God and he's making a spectacle of himself and his wife's like, hey, you're, you're, getting a, you're, you're embarrassing yourself. And he goes, you know, you think you've seen me embarrass myself? It's about to get a lot worse. In fact, the actual quote from the scripture is, I'll become even more undignified than this. So buckle up, sweetheart. I added that myself. I added that. It's not in there. See, this is an Old Testament motif too. It's, it's turning ourselves loose before God and, and worshiping him in, in whatever way we know how. I used to do ministry in a, in a, in a, in a college ministry at Arizona State University. Uh, the, the year I was at, one of the years I was at Arizona State University, we were uh, ranked Playboy's number one party school in the nation. Um, we ran an ad in the school newspaper that said, uh, last year Arizona State University was ranked Playboy's number one party school in the nation. Right underneath it, need a church? With a question mark. <laughs> it worked pretty well. Um, and we had people come out that might not otherwise have heard about the grace of God, just like this woman in this text. I remember one uh, friend of mine in particular that, um, you know, she had kind of come out of, a, of, you know, just bad life decisions and bad patterns and a little bit of promiscuity and things. And she would come uh, to church and she started hearing about the grace of Jesus. And all of a sudden she felt the weight of her sin and she began to unreservedly and unashamedly worship before Jesus. But I want you to know, now, now check this out. I want you to know, she hadn't figured out quite how to dress appropriately yet. She, she hadn't quite figured out that dancing before Jesus like she was dancing in the club like, that wasn't quite appropriate yet. But she turned her inhibitions loose before him. You know why? Because she felt the weight of her sin. And she would just, she would just cut it loose. And it, 
Like, look, I'm not saying dress however you want. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is what I'm saying is this. We worship Jesus unreservedly if and when we are the redeemed of God and we understand the great lengths he went to and we feel the weight of our sin. We just cut loose our inhibitions. And we come in this place all the time with inhibitions, don't we? You know, we, we, we feel like, you know what, I, I don't know if I should sing that loud. Some of you, you probably shouldn't. I've set by you. Um, you need to keep that inhibition in place, all right? I'm kidding. Um, but but we, don't, we don't want to sing. We don't want to engage because, you know, if, if we start to sing the chorus and the worship team doesn't do the chorus, then we're going to be the only ones singing and it's going to be an embarrassment. You think this woman was concerned about that? I don't think so. Or we come in this place and, and we start to sing, I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned, releasing inhibitions and abandoning my heart to you. And we sing it like this, I'll stand with arms high. No, you won't. They're at your side. And the invitation of worship is to worship Jesus unreservedly, unashamedly. So we're going to practice. I'm not kidding. We're going to practice. Here in a minute, I'm going to count to three, and we're all going to raise up our hands together. You know why? Because 1 Timothy 2 says, I want men everywhere to raise up holy hands. It's just there. Read it. And here's the thing. If you come from a charismatic background, if you've been in churches where it's really expressive worship, like your, your level of comfort is this. You know what I mean? That's like the charismatic hand raise. Like you're expecting people to come down the aisles with flags. You know, that's kind of the background of charismatic church. If you come from the kind of church I come from and I grew up in, in, in West Texas, like very conservative, suit and tie, people with the, like the quadruple wins or not, you know what I'm talking about? Like that's where I come from. Like this is releasing inhibitions in a Baptist church. Some of you know this. This is releasing inhibitions. It's like an unreserved, unashamed hand raise, you know? Because if you did this in my like home church, if you did like one of these, like pastor would say, you have a question? Is that what's the hand up for? It's like, that's, that's kind of what the, okay. So I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm just saying sometimes we need to take a cue from somebody and turn ourselves loose a little bit and release inhibitions a little bit and not worry about the people around us when we feel the weight of our own sin. And we know that we are the purchased of God and the redeemed. We can lift up holy hands and sing with arms high and heart abandoned. Are you ready on three? One, two, three. It's not that bad, right? It's not that bad. You might smell your neighbor. That's all right. That's fine. That's fine. It's normal. That's normal. It's just their body smell. That's it. Don't panic. Like, it's not, it's not that bad. Let's, let's cut ourselves loose a little bit because we have such a great king. Amen? We can cut ourselves loose a little bit. Let's keep going. Come on. Remember the third part of our four-step process here? We've got, um, we've got weeping. We've got wiping feet with hair. What's the third part? Kissing. Kissing feet. Jesus' feet are still dirty and dusty because Simon hasn't done anything to take care of it. He's still got all kinds of junk on him. And she begins to kiss his feet and you can almost hear her say with every kiss, I love you, I love you, I love you. Worship is an active response to Christ whereby the redeemed of God love Jesus as Savior. Worship is an active response to Christ, whereby the redeemed of God love Jesus as Savior. Men of God, I know this is difficult sometimes. Because we would prefer not to say, I love you, to Jesus. Feels weird. It just feels weird. Like, let's sing about a bulwark. Isn't that a fortress? That's, that sounds good. That's manly. Or, let thy goodness like a fetter, because that's like handcuffs. That's manly. Good. I got that. I can do that. I can sing about that. 
But when we sing, I love you, Lord, you know, the men of God are. But again, when we know that we are the redeemed of God, it just makes total sense to say to Jesus, I love you. I'm grateful for you. I think about you a lot because you saved me from an eternity separated from you. I know you purchased me with your own body and blood. I I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. It's a natural response of a heart that's been redeemed. Keep going. Fourth part. Fourth part of this fourfold pattern kind of points us to two critical pieces of worship because the woman has now wet his feet with her tears. She's wiped them with her hair. She's kissed them and now she anoints them with oil. When someone was to come in your house in that kind of custom and that kind of background, they were, you were expected to anoint their head with oil. So Simon should have done that. And you hear Jesus say, look, you didn't do any of those things. You didn't give me any oil for my head and you didn't welcome me as your guest. But when this woman comes along, she breaks this alabaster jar of of perfumed oil and just pours it on Jesus' feet. In other words, she's saying, Jesus, I welcome you as my guest. But check it, she's not in her house. Where's she welcoming him to? It's whatever she's got. You're welcome as my guest, Jesus, in my life, in my home, in my affections. I welcome you as guest. Worship is an active response to Christ, whereby the redeemed of God unreservedly love Jesus as Savior and welcome him as honored guest. Symbolically anointing the head of Jesus with oil or anointing the feet of Jesus with oil, in this particular case, welcoming him as our guest. Now, this is great. This is great because this applies all the time. This is why worship is kind of a lifestyle because you can welcome Jesus as an honored guest at your dining room table. You can welcome Jesus as an honored guest in a classroom. You can welcome Jesus as your honored guest in your office. You can welcome him as an honored guest in a hospital room, in a counseling room, in your vehicle on your commute. On TTC, baby, you can welcome Jesus as an honored guest and symbolically anoint his head with oil and say, my worship to you, Jesus, is I welcome you in every aspect of my life. That's why we sing, Hosanna, Hosanna, come have your way among us and what? We welcome you here, Lord Jesus. You are our honored guest today. But you know what else uh, that anointing of oil symbolized? Not just welcoming somebody in your home as a guest, but remember when, when David was crowned king? Remember before that happened, what did Samuel do, the prophet? He anointed David with oil. He anointed him king. There's a recognition on the behalf of this woman, not just that Jesus is an honored guest, but he's someone special and he's worth sacrificing. He's worth breaking this alabaster jar of perfume and I'm recognizing him as someone higher, better, greater than me. Worship is an active response to Christ whereby the redeemed of God unreservedly love Jesus as savior, welcome Jesus as honored guest and crown Jesus as king. Any and every area of my life, you are king, Jesus. And that is a biblical picture of worship. Hence the reason why we sing, you are my king. I want to close with this. This just dawned on me last night. I've been rereading the book of Luke uh, over and over over the last weeks and months as we've studied this. And even back last summer as we were preparing and I was doing my studying. And and I just kind of kept going over and over through this book of Luke. It's very interesting to me because Luke does this in just about every story. Go back and reread it. Go back and reread it. He does it throughout the text. 
there's two groups of people that respond to Jesus. There's the sinner, the prostitute, the tax collector, the thieves that worship him. And then there are the Pharisees that don't. The, the, the legalists, the, the folks that don't, that don't understand the weight of their sin. Listen close now. There are no other options. There's not like a group of people sitting over on the side go, you know what, when they play my song, then I'll worship. You know what, when I, when I really start to feel it, that's when I'll worship. Then, then, I'll, then I'll come before him uninhibited and love him. But until then, you know, uh, you know I, I kind of warm up to it. There, there's not that group there. Luke offers us the opportunity to identify with one of two groups, worshipers or non-worshippers. That's it. That's all we get. And, and we know that this woman, because she felt the weight of her own sin and she responded in uninhibited worship of Jesus, we know how her story ended. Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. But how does Simon's story end? The reality is we don't know. I mean, we know that he and his other you know, cronies that were sitting around at this table are talking about and they're going, who is this that forgives sin? But we don't know tone of voice there. So we don't know if they, if they said about Jesus, who does he think he is? We don't know. They may have said, who is this that forgives sin? They may have said it that way. We don't know. Here's the thing. Your story of worship is yet unwritten. We don't know what our response is going to be. This is what Luke offers us the opportunity. Are you going to respond like the woman and turn your life over to him and worship him unashamedly, love him, crown him, welcome him? You know, for each and every one of us, you know, we were at one time the Simon in the story. Maybe we are still the Simon in the story. And can, can you let Jesus just say to you today, I, I don't care about your title. I don't care about how long you've been here, all the good things you've done. Can you just let him say to you, Simon, you fill your name in there. Can you just let him look you in the eye tenderly and say, feel the weight of what it took for me to ransom you and redeem you and unreservedly, unashamedly, publicly, audibly worship me, love me, crown me, welcome me because that's what you were designed to do. As we conclude our service today, as we conclude our worship today, we're going to sing a couple of songs that I actually mentioned today. Jesus paid it all and uh, you are my king or amazing love. And as we do that, we're going to receive communion. And, and here's my invitation and here's the invitation of the text that we respond in uninhibited worship and we love him, welcome him, and crown him. We actively respond to Christ. We, we there this is our opportunity, men and women of God, to receive communion elements and to give him the glory that he's due. As the worship team comes up, I would ask the ushers to just prepare for communion and let's pray together. God, we continue in this heart posture, buckled over before you, weeping at your feet, Jesus, knowing and feeling the weight of our own sin and the great lengths that you went to to redeem us. Actively, God, now we respond. We love you, we crown you, we welcome you. We, 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 we just let inhibitions go and sing, bottom of our hearts, top of our lungs, your glory and your praise.
In the name of Christ, God's people together said, Amen.